1: People tend to overvalue what they aren't and undervalue what they are. And so, and because this thing that you do is as natural as breathing, you can't actually even value it. It's like you can't put your finger on it. If you'll look at those different compliments that you get over and over again, you'll be able to start sort of classifying them and saying, oh, this must mean that I'm, you know, I'm ma- you know, I'm good at math. I'm logically, mathematically intelligent. Or I'm really good at music. You know, I'm able to pick up these sounds. Or I'm really good at reading people. And so you'll be able to kind of look at those compliments, start to classify them in the Howard Gardner, multiple intelligences sort of way, and start to pick up on what your strengths are as a means of then playing to your strengths. Because I don't think that you can get to the top of your career um, or discipline if you're not actually playing to those, to those unique and most innate um, strengths that you have.
2: Whitney, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
1: I'm delighted to be here.
2: Yeah. So you and I met through our uh, mutual friend, Sarah Peck, who has consistently been a referral source for amazing guests. And I went to her and emailed her and said, hey, who do you have up your sleeve? And when she sent me your name, I said, I want to talk to Whitney first. So uh, it is my absolute pleasure to have you here. And on that Mm -hmm. note, can you tell us uh, a bit about yourself, your story, your background, uh, and how that has led you to all the work that you're up to in the world today?
1: In 30 seconds, right? Uh, you can take see. as long
2: as you want. You can tell <laughs> it to me in five minutes.
1: Okay, fantastic. Well, I actually, um, I, I grew up on the West Coast. I grew up in San Jose before it was Silicon Valley, and I'm I'm the oldest of four children. I would say that if I look at my life, I would never have anticipated that I would be where I am, and I think that's probably a pretty typical <clears throat> narrative for people. So very a traditional um, background growing up in public school um, and studied music and was a cheerleader in high school. And then I went to college and my plan was to major in music, which I did do. Um, I think what really was a big turning point for me was that after I graduated from college, having studied music and playing in the jazz band um, at BYU and going on a mission in Latin America for a year and a half, um, when I graduated, I was married and my husband and I moved to New York and he was getting his PhD in microbiology. It was going to take roughly seven years. And so I realized at that point that because we were in New York, it's very expensive we needed food on the table, I was going to have to go out and get a job. And realized that in fact, I didn't want to do music, but I wanted to do Wall Street. And um, so, of course, not qualified at all, I've never set foot in a business course, I have no connections, I have no confidence, I was terrified, absolutely terrified to go to New York, I would never have gone there. Um, But I decided that I need to work on Wall Street, because that's, you know, sort of the blast ring if you're in New York in the late 80s, early 90s. And it was a very exciting time of liar's poker and bonfire of the Vanities and Working Girls. So I started as a secretary and um, eventually said, okay, this is exciting. I really do want to do this. And so started taking business courses at night and eventually had a boss who believed in me and allowed me to move from secretary to invest in banker, which if you've worked on Wall Street, you know that rarely if ever happens. Um, and then that allowed me to move from banking. Eventually um, I had my first child, moved into equity research, which by many accounts, would have been considered a step back. But then really, that became my career maker. That step back became a career maker of being really an award-winning equity analyst on Wall Street. Took another step back to become an entrepreneur and then co-founded an investment firm with Clayton Christensen at the Harvard Business School. And then more recently, I've um, been speaking and advising and recently published a book called Disrupt Yourself. And so I think you could argue that I'm a serial disruptor and this book is really about Driving innovation either at the organizational or individual level um, through personal disruption. So that's a quick. Summary of my uh, of my background.
2: Awesome. Well, uh, as you can imagine, that raises tons of questions for me, and uh, I want to start actually as uh, early as growing up in Silicon Valley. I love looking at how people have grown up, what their influences were. Uh, you know, I think it's really interesting that you grew up in Silicon Valley before it was Silicon Valley, and I'm I'm just curious about you know what were the formative experiences of uh, that phase of your life that you think influenced and shaped where you ended up later on.
1: Yeah, it is interesting because actually my father is a native San Josean and my grandparents came or went to San Jose in the early 1900s. So I'm like one of those few people that had lived there their entire life. Um, So a couple of formative experiences. The first is I was born in Spain and um, because my parents were over there on an entrepreneurial venture, I was born there. And because I was born in Spain, my entire life I studied Spanish and always had the sense that I was part Spanish, which of course is ridiculous if you look at me and my genealogy, I don't look Spanish at all. But um, that was really something that was formative because I always studied Spanish. I lived in Latin America for a year and a half. And then much of the first half of my career was focused on Latin America as a banker and then an equity analyst. So I think that was definitely a formative experience. I think another really important one for me is that I'm the oldest child um, of middle class parents. And I think in many ways, being an oldest child. Um, I had a situation where I think that my, my mother was a person who actually always worked, but was of that era where she was sort of frustrated because she wanted to do a lot more. She wanted to be a doctor and the most she could be was a school teacher pretty much. And so she was that. And I think in, in, she has been a very big influence on me because as, um, as Carl Jung said, the greatest um, influence on a child is the unlived life of the parent. And I look at my mother and, you know, she had great ambitions and, um, and I think always wanted to write a book and always wanted to speak. And those things were not as easily fulfilled for her, but I have in many ways lived out the unlived life of my mother. So I think that's also been a really, um, formative experience for me. And, and the third, I would say is that, um, I was a cheerleader in high school, and that may seem kind of silly and simple, but it was an important experience for me because I realized later, and this has become sort of an ongoing metaphor for me, is that I was a cheerleader, and and certainly because girls didn't really play sports yet, that was kind of the top of the the totem pole for a female, so it was kind of the brass ring in sort of an odd way but also that going to Wall Street was uh, an an image for me of throwing down my pom-poms and getting in the game. And yet as I'm growing up, really growing up, I'm realizing that life and growing up is about not only being able to throw down the pom-poms and get in the game, but also still be able to pick up the pom-poms and cheer people on. And I feel like at this point in my career, I've learned to throw down my pom-poms and get in the game. But some of my most satisfying experiences now are when I pick up my pom-poms and encourage people either through my writing or speaking um, or or individual coaching.
2: What... Uh would you say uh, you've learned about human behavior and psychology from your time as a cheerleader that you've applied to your life uh, and the work that you've done uh, throughout your life?
1: Um, you know, so it's interesting as I I look, I think this happens sometimes as an oldest child is that you, you sort of can never quite measure up to your parents' expectations, whatever those expectations are. And, um, I think a lot of times as a child, I wanted to sort of hear this more encouraging voice. And as a cheerleader, I became that encouraging voice, um, in, you know, in a very archetypal sort of way. But I do find now that one of the things that, I think one of my superpowers actually is my ability to identify another person's gifts and name those gifts and, and for them and to talk about those gifts to them. And so I sometimes, you know, think of myself as an investor in stocks and people and concepts and dreams. And I think that a cheerleader in sort of a very fundamental way is investing in another person or in an idea or even a, a business. Hmm.
2: So you brought up parental expectations. I'm, an old, I, I'm the oldest child uh, of two, and uh, you, you mentioned this sense that you never can quite live up to that expectation. I think that's like an ongoing tension that uh, many o- older children live with and, and one that I feel I've wrestled with throughout my life. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, how do you start to resolve that tension?
1: Hmm. Well, I think the first way you resolve it is you become aware of it um, and realize that that that's just sort of something that you know your parents do, and that there's sort of a cost. You know, I believe there's a special place in heaven for oldest children because <laughs> they bear the burdens of their children, you know, their parents' expectations, and kind of cushion things for their younger you know siblings. And I certainly feel that way with our oldest child versus our our you know our younger child. Um, I think the way that you begin to resolve it. Though is to become aware of it, and then also secondarily, or not secondarily, but in sequence, begin to realize that some of some of your greatest strengths come because of your your biggest challenges. So on the one hand, I maybe could never quite measure up to some sort of artificial, you know, goal line, etc. But that, because of that, that fed my ambition and my drive and my motivation to prove myself and so, on the one hand it's it's a bane, but on the other hand it's it's a huge boon because I think much of my my hunger and drive comes from that trying to measure up so so to realize that there's there's a light and a dark, there's a a good and a bad um you know positive and negative around that, and to to over time, sort of forgive your parents for doing that because that's sort of the great challenge of a lifetime. But then also understand that they gave you a tremendous gift and, and over time, you know lean and skew more and more toward the gift piece of it and let the other piece just sort of sort of drift away.
2: You know, it, It's interesting because, uh, you know, growing up in an immigrant family, like you deal with this whole other world of things that I felt that, you know, people who aren't uh, kids of immigrants don't, didn't really understand. Like, you know, when you suddenly have to be cool in junior high school, like that world <laughs> was so weird to my parents. They thought I was like this freak of nature when I wanted $100 shoes and really expensive jeans and polo shirts. And when that moment happened in my sister's life, it was like, okay, you need a $100 pair of jeans. We can do that. We're on board right. with this. Like, this crazy weird phase is completely normal to us now because we've been through it. So it's kind of like you said, you you kind of paved the way for your siblings by being your parents experiment.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And, and and you think about it, you look at your, your, your younger sister and she probably in certain ways, like she just has this sense of self and kind of, because you really were a cushion for her. And I think it's a, It's, you know, younger children have to deal with their own things, but I do think that that if if we're really good older siblings, we kind of give a gift to our younger siblings.
2: (laughs) I love that. What would you say the gift that you've given uh, is to your younger siblings, just out of curiosity?
1: Um, Well, what I just said of being a cushion of, you know, kind of having those expectations fall on me. I think that's definitely a gift. I I like to think that I'm a good example or good role model. um, But I think, yeah, the first one is really just sort of being that cushion. Uh
2: So, you mentioned earlier that you uh, were a music major, and uh, I almost became a music major. I got into the USC School of Music, and my dad talked me out of going.
1: Uh, Oh, what's your instrument?
2: I played the tuba for 13 years. Okay. And. I got in for music performance and my dad said, there's no way you're going to make a career out of that. And, you know, I don't dis I, I don't regret that uh, he, he made me not go because for tuba players, you literally have to wait for somebody to die for a job to open up uh, in an orchestra. Cause there's only one. But the question that raises for me is, is what has been the impact and influence of music on your life and your work?
1: The first thing that comes to mind is that it, it taught me discipline, <laughs> I mean, hands down, right? It taught me discipline um, of, you know, getting up in the morning and practicing piano and, you know, in college and really that, you know, discipline to sit down and stay and concentrate and stay with something. So that would be the first thing, although that's not really music per se. That's just taking up something and working hard at it. Um, I would say, you know, if I'm looking at Howard Gardner and this whole notion of of different kinds of intelligences and musical intelligence in particular – I think that one of the things that music does is it gives you it gives you an ear and it gives you a sense of an arc um, and you know in music there's you know if there's a sonata or a symphony or whatever you sort of got this beginning middle and end and you really you really um, ingest that and that becomes a part of who you are and I, I my sense is that because of that it's helped me with my writing, I feel like there needs to be a musicality to what I've written. There needs to be a musicality to when I speak or, you know, to giving a speech. And, um, and so there's an ear for that, that I think becomes important in terms of musicality, as well as a structure around any sort of, um, written spoken or actually even an event.
2: Hmm. So, the discipline piece. Do you think that that's something uh, that can be learned or cultivated, or do you think it's just inherently built into certain people?
1: Oh, I think it can be learned. I think it, it's probably comes more naturally to some people, but I mean, I I absolutely ascribe to you know Carol Dweck's whole you know view of the world of mindset and that um, that intelligence is, is, is plastic. It's not fixed. And that, um, and that we can change over time. I certainly think that we are born with certain aptitudes. And so some people may be innately more disciplined, but I think it's absolutely something that you could cultivate. Hmm.
2: So I'm really glad you brought up the, uh, the, the different aptitudes because you mentioned the different types of intelligence. I'd love to really kind of do uh, a deeper dive into what those are and how people might figure out what theirs is.
1: Sure. So the so obviously I'm not an expert, but I here here's what I know about it and wh- and how I've thought about it is there are two kinds of intelligences that are considered like the basic ones and these are what you get tested on in IQ tests and aptitude tests is it's the you know, the logical mathematical intelligence and, um, you know, basically kind of reading and writing. And, um, in our society, you know, almost always we know when people are logically mathematically intelligent because we value that tremendously. Like anybody who's sort of nerdy and, you know, entrepreneurial Mark Zuckerberg, you know, like off the charts, logical mathematical. So those ones are easy to identify and they're also very, very valued. Um, what I would say um, there are other kinds of intelligences that are less easy to identify. So there are things like musical intelligence that we just talked about. There's kinesthetic intelligence. And that one tends to be pretty easy to pick up on because you're probably going to be a fairly good athlete. And again, people value that. Um, but there are other kinds of intelligence that are intelligences that are lesser known that I think are um, just as value, but they're not as easily identified. So there might be so there's, for example, interpersonal intelligence—the ability to read people and read situations. Those soft skills that are tremendously valuable, but we don't necessarily value them. And yet, those are skills that can allow you to be very, very successful in, in a chosen in your chosen profession. There's intrapersonal intelligence—the ability to analyze and to um, be introspective and to, you know, reflect on what you're doing and to progress and and develop as a person and develop your character. Um, There is also a silo, cross silo, or sorry, searchlight intelligence. So the ability to be able to look across a lot of different disciplines and domains and make meaning of those different data points and configure them in such a way that you're able to see things that other people aren't able to see. So those are some different examples, and I think you know, to your question of, you know, how do you identify what, what, which intelligences you have, a couple of hacks that I've come up with, um, one is to, uh, listen to the compliments that people give you that you dismiss, that you ignore, that you think are silly or, you know, just sort of trivial. Um, and it could be that you've heard it so many times that you think, you know, why are they telling me I do this thing well? Like, I, I know I do it well, and so what? Who cares? It's not that big of a deal. Well, that, in fact, is probably one of your superpowers because what's happening is that you're doing it reflexively well, so you overlook it. People tend to overvalue what they aren't and undervalue what they are. And so, and because this thing that you do is as natural as breathing, you can't actually even value it. It's like you can't put your finger on it. If you'll look at those different compliments that you get over and over again, you'll be able to start sort of classifying them and saying, oh, this must mean that I'm, you know, I'm math, you know, I'm good at math. I'm logically mathematically intelligent. Or I'm really good at music. You know, I'm able to pick up these sounds. Or I'm really good at reading people. And so you'll be able to kind of look at those compliments, start to classify them in the Howard Gardner multiple intelligences sort of way and start to pick up on what your strengths are as a means of then playing to your strengths because I don't think that you can get to the top of your career um, or discipline if you're not actually playing to those those unique and most innate um, strengths that you have.
2: Why do you think so many people uh, spend so much of their lives not actually playing to those unique and innate strengths and uh, not reach, reaching their potential in their careers and their lives? Like, what do you think our education system has to do with that? And, and why do you think this just isn't inherently part of the way we're groomed in our careers?
1: Well, I think the, the, so. The educational system. I mean, I think that, you know, our educational system is quite antiquated at this point, and it had to set up some type of standard and sort of rudimentary skills that people would have, and they needed to be able to do math, and they needed to be able to read, and they needed to be able to write to function. And so that actually makes a lot of sense to me. I think also those particular skills... Um, are very measurable and we tend to like things that we can measure because they make us feel certain and when we feel certain we feel we feel safe um, so there's really a, a logical reason for all of that um, i think what we're discovering now though is that those skills are important but uh, you know they are necessary but not sufficient um, in terms of our own skills and why we tend to not play to them i think it's because we we over you know we overvalue what we aren't um, You know, for example, I mean, let me give you kind of a personal example. I think about when I was working on Wall Street as an equity analyst. So, you know, I I move into building financial models and, you know, having to make a call on a stock and deciding if a stock was over or undervalued and figuring out, you know, what I thought wireless penetration in Mexico was going to do. Well, I hadn't built a lot of models in college because I was a music major. So when I started to build these models, I had to work really hard at it. And I ended up building very good models. But if you had said to anybody, any employer, I'm going to hire Whitney and put her in a cubicle and have her build models all day, they're going to be like, yeah, okay, whatever. Um, And yet, I I needed to be able to do that because it was a pay-to-play skill. But what allowed me to be a really, really good analyst was building on the foundation of that pay-to-play skill. Um, But then focusing on my cross-silo intelligence and my interpersonal intelligence and maybe even a little bit of my musical intelligence, it was all those intelligences that allowed me to be really, really good. And yet I remember on several occasions when people said to me, oh, well, you're really good at connecting things. I was like – what are you, are you like insulting me? You know, like, cause I didn't value that at all. Cause like, it was so easy. Like, how could I possibly value that? It didn't matter. It wasn't important. And if you go back to sort of that artificial bar that your parents set, well then, you know, you're, you're, you can't actually ever measure up. Cause if you measure up, then what will happen to your paradigm of the world? Because by definition you don't. So I think that the reason that people th- don't value that is because we don't actually allow ourselves to, and we, we tend to Again, we value what we aren't. And so I think one of the real things that people can do if they are willing to do it is to look at what people say they do well over and over again and be willing to actually get paid for and do those things. And when you do, you'll find that, in fact, you're happier and, in fact, you're more successful.
2: Hmm. So... uh... One of the things I want to do is is talk about uh, this drastic change uh, in your life where you go from having been a music major to deciding to uh, work on Wall Street and going from being a secretary all the way to becoming an investment banker, something you yourself said uh, does not happen uh, and is not very common. What I'm really curious about is the internal character traits that enable that kind of a drastic identity shift and that kind of success to happen. Hmm.
1: Um, you know, I I don't have a good answer other than to say, I mean, I, you know, there's a lot of stuff I could point to, um, or I could say it's this, I I think it's just that I, I'm really hungry. I, I mean, I think, you know, this idea, if I go, if I look at, if I look at one of the values, my core values is that, you know, sort of, I, I dread the prospect of ever being really stuck and not being able to get unstuck. And so I always think about how am I going to improve myself? How am I going to get better? And, you know, as I said earlier, I've had this drive or this ambition to achieve. And, you know, it's hard for me to actually admit that because women aren't supposed to be ambitious. But the fact is, is that I am. And so I always have been really, really driven. And I think I'm competitive. I mean, I remember being in, you know, Fifth grade and playing dodgeball and boy, I was going to win. I was going to win, you know. And so, you know, I in high school, of course, I cloaked that by being a cheerleader. But I think that probably the biggest thing is is that I don't ever want to be stuck. And so that's sort of that personal sense. Um, I think there's probably some sort of my my religious underpinnings of wanting to improve myself. And then the third piece, which is sort of the less attractive piece, I suppose, is is just being ambitious and wanting to be successful, you know, in, in sort of a measurable, quantitative sort of way because, of course, our society values that. Mm.
2: So I want to ask you about something that uh, I've asked a handful of people because this question has been so interesting to me and especially getting to hear all the different perspectives. Uh, you know, I, I heard uh, Chris Saka talk about this story multiple times uh, as an investor, and he, he talks about how uh, when he invests in startups – Every founder that he's seen has this sense of an inevitability of success that whatever they're working on is going to be successful, and I get the fact that I get the sense that you have that built into you as well, and I'm just very curious you know what you have to say about that um and are certain people just born with that uh, and can that be learned, and if so, how
1: hmm you know you're right
4: <laughs>
1: <laughs> i i I never that never occurred to me, but you're right. I mean, I, I do have, I mean, don't get me wrong. I have a lot of self doubt and I have a lot of fear. I mean a lot, but I do believe that I, you know, I do believe that in the end I will be successful. Yeah, I do. So now the question is, are some people born with that? I think so. Um, certainly if I, you know, observe my friends and conversations that I have with people, they don't necessarily think that they will be successful. Um, and that's a real question that they have. So for me, I look at it and I think I will in the end be successful, but oh boy, do I have a lot of roadblocks and hurdles,
4: including,
1: you know, insecurity and self-doubt and, you know, anxiety and all those things that I've got to deal with in order to get there. But I do believe fundamentally, now that you're asking me this question, Mm -hmm. that I will get there. Um, Do people, can they develop that? Again, back to the whole Carol Dweck mindset, I believe that we can. But the question is, is that they may not want to, it it may, they may feel happy enough. And, um, you know, sort of in the Jane Austen sort of way, sometimes I read some of the Jane Austen books, and I think, wow, wouldn't that be cool to just sort of, Mm -hmm. Be happy in the Jane Austen sort of way, but that's, that's, you know, that's not how I'm wired. And, and that's all good.
4: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary developed,
0: Hmm.
2: You know, it, it's interesting. Uh, I think there's sort of a continuum to to the level at which you you accomplish this and have this inevitability of success, right? Like somebody who makes art and is happy just making art and making a living versus Mark Zuckerberg, who has to create Facebook. And, right. you know, and, and I, you know, I, I, the reason this is fresh in my mind is because, uh, you know, I'd finished writing the final chapter to my book. And I said, you know, where you are in this conti- continu- continuum doesn't necessarily diminish the contribution that you make to the world in any way.
1: No, I I think that's right. But that takes that, that what you just said requires a tremendously mature view, um, and, uh, kind of goes to sort of people's core value systems of believing that every individual is of equal worth to every other individual and that the contribution that they make in their sphere is of equal, is of equal import. And that, we're not wired. Our social system is not set up to believe that that is true. Hmm.
2: So you mentioned self-doubt, fear, and uh, anxiety. and <laughs> I
1: wondered if you were going to pick oh, up on that. Oh, there's no like, way I was
2: going to let you like, off the hook really on that. I really
1: want to mention those things. <laughs> but. I figured since you, I, you since you told me this was kind of going to be, you know, one of those Oprah on the couch moments, I figured we might as well just go there. Oh,
2: yeah, I, I absolutely want to go there because, uh, you know, I mean, I, I've, you know, for the first time in my life, I dealt with periods of crippling depression, like enough to have to go see a therapist, you know, and this was, you know, last year. But the more that I talk to people like you, the more I talk to high achieving people, the more I am finding this to be very, very true and, and a commonality among people who we appear you know to look like they have everything together but underlying it are a lot of the things that you've talked about so um, I'm curious you know what are the things that create self-doubt for you what are the things that you're afraid of uh, and you know how have you dealt with them and and you know what advice do you have for people who feel uh, all of those things
1: yeah okay so the self-doubt we've we talked about I think you know part of its you know just upbringing mm-hmm. um, And, and it can happen, I think, and again, I think it can happen to someone who's middle class. I think it can happen who someone is, you know, comes from great poverty, but I think that self-doubt can come from people who, who have very, very successful, you know, intact families. It just, it it, it can happen in a variety of contexts. So I I think it has nothing to do with that. I think it's just sort of who we are, um, so I would say, the second thing I would say is, you know, therapy, therapy, therapy. I mean, I think one of the great, you know, uh, unfortunate things of our, our generation and time, although things have improved dramatically, is that there's a great stigma around people saying, you know, I've got to, I, I need to attend to my my mind in the same way that I attend to my physical body. And mm-hmm. so that's certainly been, you know, something that's, I think, been important that as things destigmatize. So I would say that's the second thing is a willingness to to be able to go see a therapist and and to go see a therapist and to learn and and you know grow and develop and to read, you know, psychology books like We by Robert Johnson. I'm a big fan of union psychology and I think that's been very helpful. And then the third thing I would say is just to recognize and, and have an understanding that something like anxiety that you know probably a lot of people deal with is not necessarily it's not just in your mind like there's a physical aspect to it and and understanding that that it's always going to be there and and learning to also see and I, I remember talking to an entrepreneur her name is Allie Downey she started a company called We Spring and she she has this thesis and I think there it, there's some truth to it that all um all entrepreneurs sort of really entrepreneurial people struggle with a certain, a low-grade type of depression and that, in fact, it's that low-grade type of depression when you flip to the other side of it is there's a certain mania to it that gives you this motivation and drive that, in fact, creating things, building businesses is is an antidote to that low-grade depression. So they almost become two sides of the same coin And, and it's her theory and thesis, but I actually think that there's, you know, my own experience says anecdotally there's something to that.
2: Hmm. So fear, what is the thing that you're most scared of?
1: Um, being stuck is definitely one thing that I'm afraid of. And another thing, uh, I have a fear that my children won't like me. Um, (laughs) do you have children? No, No. you're not old enough to have children. Yeah. Um, well you're old enough physically to have children, but you don't have children. Um, so I think, yeah, I, I have a fear that my children won't like me, which is a real fear. Um, And then I guess the other fear I have is I get I have fear of going up on stage, you know, like speaking. That creates anxiety for me, sort of performance anxiety. So that sort of feeling of like, what if I show people who I am and what I think, and will it be okay? And then, of course, the big irony is that as soon as you start worrying about, then it then you're not okay and you're not good enough. But if you can just let go and be open to people, it's all good. So I think those are three different fears I have, I'm sure I could catalog, you know, have a much longer catalog, but that's probably enough. Hmm.
2: So earlier you mentioned, uh, that you co-founded an investment firm with Clayton Christensen. And I, I happen to have read, uh, his book, how will you measure your life? Uh, which yeah. I absolutely love. And uh-huh. one of the things that you said, uh, about success was this idea of getting there. And I was curious, uh, how you define what there is like, what does there look like? Mm.
1: Well, okay. So so I think uh, there's going to be an answer to that. It, it, it's not just one thing. So, I mean, I, and it's changed over time, right? right? So I think that, you know, when I was younger, it was making lots and lots and lots of money and having a really prestigious title. Um Those things still matter to me. Um, So, you know, like right now I just released a book and success would be selling lots and lots of books. And I actually said to a number of people that I had a goal for it to be a New York Times bestseller, which as of this point, it is not. Doesn't mean it can't be um, at some point because sometimes they do become bestsellers, you know, a year or two out. Um, So those are all certain, you know, metrics that I use to measure, you know, how I'm doing Um, and how much, you know, how much money I'm making, et cetera. So, so that's part of it. And I think it would be completely disingenuous if I said that those things did not matter to me. Um, some other metrics though, that do matter deeply is, um, Samuel Johnson said that the ultimate result of all ambition is to be happy at home. And I think for me, more and more I realize that a huge metric of success for me is, is, uh, am I happy when I'm at home? Do I have a good relationship with my husband? Do I have a good relationship with my son? Do I have a good relationship with my daughter? Do I have friends that I love and that love me and care about me? Those are really important metrics of success for me. And I think the third one is, um, is am I a good person? Um, It really matters to me to have uh, character, to be honest, to be kind, to be generous, to be forgiving. And, um, and, uh, and I would say that while those things to your comment earlier about being on a continuum, I will never be perfect in any of those things. But if I am more generous, more kind, more forgiving, less judgmental, um, this year, than um, I was last year, then I feel like, Um, you know, in a qualitative sense, then then I am being successful. So I I suppose I have, you know, a number of different metrics of success. But there's professional metrics, there's the, the relationship metrics, am I happy at home with my relationships? And then there's the personal one of am I becoming a better person?
2: Well, let's do this. Let's shift gears a little bit and uh, let's start talking about the work that you do around disruption. Uh, what I'd really like to do is kind of walk through a framework of how people bring uh, the sense of personal di- disruption into their life to create more innovation, to you know, have more creativity in their work that they do, and, and really just talk in more detail about your, your actual work.
1: Okay, I uh, would love to. So so on this idea of disruption, um, as we mentioned, you know, I worked with Clayton for, uh, for the better part of a decade, and um, when I first actually discovered disruptive innovation, I was still an equity analyst um covering covering. Um wireless in Latin America and I kept seeing that they kept beating my forecasts and I was being aggressive in my forecast I felt like I was an outlier in terms of my peer group of other Wall Street analysts and yet they were still beating my forecast and when I first came across the frameworks of disruption I discovered oh okay these actually help explain this phenomenon that i'm seeing um, and so what I discovered then is as I really delved into the um, innovators dilemma that I started to have this this kernel of an idea that that disruption didn't just apply to products and services and and companies, but also it applied to us as individuals and that was part of the impetus for my being willing to disrupt myself and leave Wall Street. Um, Over the five years that I worked with Clayton on the fund, um, I thought about this more and more as we were applying the frameworks to innovation and to investing in both early stage startups and publicly traded securities and started to having have these ideas coalesce and um, as i thought about the s curve which we use to gauge how quickly an innovation will be adopted it occurred to me that it also could help us really understand the psychology of disruption and so i started reimagining this s curve as a way of thinking about personal disruption and and my growing thesis that companies don't disrupt, but people do, and that the best way to drive corporate innovation is through personal disruption. And so I have this S curve. You know, we look at it, it helps us gauge how quickly an innovation will be adopted. At the low end, you know, growth is going to be really slow. You hit a tipping point of 10 to 15 percent, you're accelerating the hyper growth, and at the upper end of the curve or saturation, it tapers off. And then you understand the psychology of disruption because at the low end grows slow. So you know that you don't get discouraged. And then you go into hyper growth, you feel competent and therefore feel very confident and that the high end grows slows. And you realize that Everything's easy, but you're bored. And if you're bored, your plateau becomes a precipice. So you've got now these S-curve waves of disruption, to use a metaphor that I know you like. Mm-hmm. is um, And the importance of being able to surf these S-curve waves of disruption is actually a skill set. And it's important to be able to get to the top of the curve to jump to a new curve, and then um, and the faster that you can master these cycles of learning and mastering, the more of a competitive advantage you'll have in you know, an era that is really full and rife with disruption. And so then the final piece of this framework is that I identified seven variables that will allow you to speed your progress along the curve, um, from identifying your distinctive strengths, which I alluded to a few moments ago, taking the right kinds of risks, embracing constraints, etc. cetera.
2: Okay. So can we get into those seven pieces Absolutely. in more detail? Absolutely. Yeah.
1: So, um, all right. So what I'll, I'll, I'll tick through each of them and give you a, an example for each one of them. So the first one is um, whenever you jump to a new curve, it's important to take the right kinds of risk. And what I mean by that is there are different kinds of risks you can take. There's competitive risk and there's market risk. So competitive risk is when Um, One of your colleagues comes to you and says, you know, there's this huge market opportunity. We've got to go after this. I've got the projections to prove it. Well, that means that someone's probably already scoped out the market. There's a kingpin. It's not you. And so you have to gauge, can I compete and can I win? And that's competitive risk. And then there's market risk, which is where someone comes to you and says, you know, I don't know if there's a market I have no idea, but I think there's a job that people want done. So I can't give you projections, but let's design a test to find out. This is market risk. So you don't know if there are going to be customers, but if there are because you created the market, you're favored to own that market. Um, A very quick example of that is is um, one of my friends, they, you know, from San Jose, her children wanted to set up a lemonade stand. And so as children often do, but they didn't set up in front of the house where you knew the friends and family would come. They didn't set up in front of the grocery store where you knew that there were people who went to buy milk or juice, etc. They set up next to a football field on a hot day after football practice. So they understood market risk. And because there were turned out to be customers. The entire market was theirs for the taking, and they made $70 in about 15 minutes. And so that's the difference between market and competitive risk. And it really does apply for you as a business, and it also applies for you as an individual in your career. And so I can go into more detail, but I'll just keep going through quickly, and then you can you know drill deeper on one of them if you'd like. So once you've identified market risk, um, oh, by the way, When you take on market risk, according to the theory of disruption, the odds of success are six times higher and the revenue opportunity 20 times greater. So you really want to look for market risk. And then you walk through the door of opportunity of market risk by playing to your distinctive strengths. We've alluded to that a minute ago. You want to identify what your strengths are by figuring out what compliments you get that you dismiss, et cetera and then figure out your distinctive strengths, which are the things that you do well that people in your sphere do not. So for example, woman, Janie Duban, she's a lawyer. Um, Law firms tend to be conservative. 10 years ago, she said, you know what? I'm gonna start blogging. I'm gonna check out this social media thing. Lawyers in her firm looked at it kind of like, what are you doing? She took some flack. They didn't see the opportunity, but she started to land clients and she sidestepped layoffs because she was on social media. And then that bolstered her case for becoming a partner. So she had that pay to play skill of being a lawyer, but the social media became her distinctive strength. And so she saw market opportunity. She walked through it. And then the third is to embrace your constraints. And actually one of the best ways To find your distinctive strengths is to embrace your constraints because whenever you're trying something new, you're trying to, you know, surf that curve, you um, need feedback. You need a lot of it and you need it quickly. And one of the best ways to get that is to impose constraints. So if you think about skateboarders, they are some of the quickest learners in the world because they receive this incredibly fast and useful feedback. So as you're looking to climb a curve, you want to Embrace your constraints, whether they're time, money, buy-in, or expertise. And as you get to the top of the curve, you may need to impose constraints. But if you can optimize those constraints, they become not a check on your freedom, but a tool of creation that allows you to move more quickly up the curve. So those are the first three. Number four is to battle entitlement. And entitlement is this belief that I exist, therefore I deserve. Um, we often say that millennials are entitled. Well, guess what? We all deal with entitlement, um, whether we're at the low end, the high end, young, old, regardless of our discipline. And so what is important here is that um, we tend to believe that the more we have, the more we deserve what we have. Um, and so it's really important to battle entitlement because in order to have the wherewithal to continue to move up the curve, we have to um, continue to be hungry. Um, and so that's there's a lot more that I could say about that. But I think that um, one of the best ways to battle entitlement is to open up your network. Um, to uh, put yourself and be around people who aren't like you because it requires you to figure out how to get buy-in. And one of the best ways to buy to battle entitlement is to have the humility to get buy-in for your ideas. Um, so that's the fourth step. The fifth is to step back in order to grow. Lots of different ways you can step back. You can just step back to have a perspective, you know, like you you just finished your manuscript, Mm -hmm. you're stepping back for a few weeks. Um when you come back to it, you'll have a different perspective. So you're it may feel like you should charge forward, but that four or five weeks that you just let it sit is going to give you a perspective. So you're stepping back in order to grow. It can happen with your business. Um, You step back, you sacrifice near-term profits to let people try something new or to pivot in your strategy. It may feel like a step back, but over the long term, um, there is no such thing as standing still. And in fact, sideways or backwards can turn into a slingshot. Number six is the all-important giving failure it's due. Um, Whenever we try something new, there's always this fantasy of a simple linear world you're just going to work hard and your dreams will come true and sometimes it doesn't and so one of the things that I've discovered is that it's really important to when we fail to allow ourselves to grieve because again the grieving there's a lot of emotion and energy behind that grieving and we need that energy and motion and emotion that will allow us to drive forward um, when we're finished grieving. And also it's important to acknowledge the fact that if we make the failure become about us, um, we make it a referendum on us, then we lose our ability to ask these really important questions. Like what important truth did I learn because of this failure? And I think that, um, well, I'm going to tell you a story. I'll pause and tell a story here. So, I had this experience um, where I discovered that failure is a choice. Actually, I was giving a speech. I was speaking to about 2,500 people, and the speech was actually on this whole idea of union psychology of valuing feminine characteristics, relationships as much as masculine characteristics, so power and achieving. And about. 30 seconds into my speech, I just went completely blank. So I'm on stage in front of 2,500 people, and I have no idea what I'm going to say. Well, a few seconds in, one of the people from the audience just yells out, you can do it, Whitney. And my memory just immediately came back. So a few hours later, my agent, you know, is texting me like, how did it go? How did it go? And I was like, oh, how did it go? So I was thinking, well, power and achieving metric, it was terrible. It was a disaster. But if I was thinking like connection, did I feel connected to the audience? It actually was a really, really successful, successful speech. So here I am. I'm like having to make this choice. I'm having this sort of metaphysical moment I tend to idealize power and achieving, so I had to make this choice, and well, I did choose best, but it was really hard, and I had to choose, was my experience a failure or success? And so one of the things I continue to come back to is John Milton, who said, the mind is its own place and can make of every heaven a hell and of every hell a heaven. And I think it's the same with success and failure. The mind is its own place. and can make of every success a failure and of every failure a success. And so I think that's really important as we think about this process of climbing curves is how are we going to view the experiences that we're having. And then the seventh and final variable is to be discovery driven, to understand that when you're pursuing a disruptive course, you're going after this market that has not yet been defined. And so you've got to take a step forward and gather feedback and adapt accordingly and it probably means you'll end up in a place that you hadn't anticipated, but 70% of all successful businesses end up in a different place, too, like Groupon. You know, it started out as this activism platform to fundraise for a cause, to boycott retailers, which, of course, is really ironic. Um, and then Netflix started out as a door-to-door DVD rental service. So so those are really the seven steps. You end up with discovery-driven, understanding that you can't see the end from the beginning. And um, if you can implement those steps. And almost every person has one or two that will really make a difference right now that will allow you to climb the current curve that you're on and be prepared to jump to your new curve. And again, the faster that you can can surf these waves of disruption, the more successful I believe that you'll be. Again, however you define success, but I do think it will lead to your success.
2: That was epic. Um, oh, I'm
1: so glad. <laughs> yeah,
2: you know that 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 five minutes right there was like basically, you know, the price of the interview was just like right there. So much stuff in there. Uh, so I have I've one question about this. Uh, where have you seen people resist all of this? Like, what causes people to resist this?
1: So I think there are a couple of different causes of resistance. So the one is that um, people get comfortable. Um, You know, this is the whole idea of why, you know, your plateau becomes a precipice because you're on this plateau. It feels really comfortable. And why would I jump? Like, you know, why would I do that? Why would I cut my revenue in half, whether I'm a business or an individual? And so it just feels really comfortable. There's this sense of inertia. And so people are reluctant to do it. Of course, we all know what happens is that when you're reluctant to do it, then you get disrupted. And so it's sort of like, okay, are you going to stand still and get disrupted, or are you just going to disrupt yourself? So that's one reason. I think the other one is that you may know you're on a plateau and that you need to jump, but you're just scared. I mean, it's scary to do. And you know, like when I disrupted myself, like I felt a loss of identity. I mean, it's not like you know, I just like jumped and we, you know, it's fun forever. I thought it was going to be, but of course, it's not. And You know, sometimes I'm a sadder but wiser girl, but I think it's the fear. And so that's why I come back to this whole notion and sort of this wonderful circularity, no circularity, I don't know if that's a word, this (laughs) wonderful circularity to dreams. And I think that's why dreams are so important. And I didn't know this when I first started out, but, you know, dreams really do mean that we're hungering for a better life and they cause us to be these problem solvers and we let nothing stand in our way. And so for me, dreaming, it's the dreaming that's the parachute that gives you, the, you know, it's the engine of disruption that allows you to jump from one curve to the next and, and experience that moment of free fall because your dreams are going to buoy you as you do it. And it's why we have to allow our people to bring their dreams to work. Because if we don't, they're not gonna have the courage that they need um, or you know, or the incentive or the motivation that they need to be willing to disrupt themselves. And if they won't disrupt themselves, it's tough for your company to disrupt itself. Hmm.
2: So, I have one last question, which is how we finish all our interviews at Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: Hmm. You can interpret that word a lot of different ways, can't you? Yeah. <sighs> Well, I'm not going to interpret unmistakable because we all make mistakes, um, and according to what I just said, I have to choose to interpret the f- mistake as a failure or a success. Um, so I'm going to I'm going to view unmistakable as something that's distinctive, an unmistakable identity, an unmistakable person, an unmistakable. Um, you just know who they are. Um, And I would say, you know, there's this idea of, you know, they're sort of a Google of, you know, problems to be solved, but there's only one of you. And so I think you're unmistakable when you find the problem that only you can solve, and then you do it with your imprimatur in a way that no one else could. To me, that's unmistakable.
2: You almost echoed the exact sentiment uh, of my book and the way I've defined it.
1: Good. I think that means I'll like your book.
2: (laughs) Well, Whitney, this has been phenomenal. uh, And I really appreciate you taking the time to to join us and share your story and uh, your journey and your insights with our listeners at The Unmistakable Creative.
1: Well, thank you for having me.
2: Yeah, it's my pleasure. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. If you like what you heard, the greatest compliment you could give us is to share the show with a friend and let people know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Unmistakable Creative.
5: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods,